G'day, my name is Chris Anderson. Welcome to the Ando and Co podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Marcel von Pfeiffer, who is the managing director of Arminius Capital, and we met in finance in Brisbane in 2010. And really, for me, I hope that you're able to get some of what I get out of being able to sit down with Marcel regularly, and that is that he's able to unpack what's happening in the global macro world, whether it be finance, politics, or anything else along those lines. So Marcel, to kick things off, what can you tell us about yourself? I was born in Australia to relatively humble parents, both self-employed, both incredibly hardworking people. I lasted a few years in Australia, found myself in New York, working and then in London, I had the pleasure of working at the great what Matt Taibbi uh, wrote the Rolling Stone piece about the um, the vampire squid wrapping its face around humanity, which of course was Goldman Sachs. I also had a little time and a place in Jersey, um, in the Channel Islands, which was super cool. I then came back to Australia, met a girl who was Australian, got married, had a couple of kids. During that timeline. I quit an excellent paying job to start my own business while my wife was three months pregnant with our first child. I'm still married. So that paid off and then ended up in a fairly niche area in the funds management world, one that is not not particularly well understood nor appreciated in this country. And so I moved back to Europe about five years ago, maybe six years ago. So here I am back in Australia now for about a year or so. And as I sort of mentioned earlier, one of the big benefits I find in being able to catch up with Marcel regularly is that I don't necessarily watch the news every day, but he does. And so if I ask a question, I know that he's already looked at all the news, unpacked all the data, and when he answers me in terms of what's going on in the world, I don't have to second guess it. And so I guess, Marcel, before we dive into anything else, What's been going on in the world over the last 12 months that is impacting your world in financial markets? I would expect that the majority of the public would expect me to say the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. okay? Because it's a terrible thing that's happened over in Europe, but to blame the machinations of what's impacted financial markets in 2022 solely and singularly on Putin and the Russians, I think is a critical point that many, many people have missed. And there are those of us in the markets, along with myself, who have actually had a, you know, we've had a spectacular year with our returns. But the problem is, is that this has all been caused from what all the world governments and the world central banks did post-March 26th when Powell got on the uh, TV and said, effectively, we're just going to open the sluice gates, open the dam gates again with the the, uh, easing of monetary policy. So there are other things at play, and they all come back to why we've had such a year. Ultimately, it all comes back to inflation. It comes back to the energy complex, so oil and natural gas. So all of this is driven literally by the price of energy. Mm -hmm. And when you're in an inflationary environment, the one thing 
the, the single thing, you know, you, you'll get all these reports from stockbrokers and fund managers and real estate guys and your bank manager who will say, oh, I think we're going into an inflationary period. So if we are, you need to buy this. Right? And I'll tell you what to buy. They're salesmen, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you what actually, what is immutable, what will always go up in value in an inflationary environment are energy commodities, mm-hmm. right? And they will keep going up until we tip into a, a recessionary environment. And as I say, the, the best solution for high oil prices is higher oil prices. Of course, there is a, a mathematical, um, an econometric equation which sort of says that around about 120 bucks a barrel US dollars, the world can accommodate and absorb energy at that price level. And in the old days, before certain countries blew up pipelines of natural gas, the gas price was kind of also correlated to the oil price. So you have this you have this environment where inflation hits the world's growth level, growth profile is, is very healthy, perhaps too healthy. And oil can keep going up in price up until about 120 bucks a barrel. Then it gets much more expensive, increases the cost of factors of production. And as we see in Europe now, with the gas, the impact of the gas prices on you know the manufacturing behemoth of Europe, which is Germany, is that they're now shutting down manufacturing plants. So you have, if you like, these domino effects of originally really is an inflation problem. Um, which I believe, from my school of thought, and demonstrably what these twits did in 2020, is that this is a demon of their own design. The central banks and the governments have literally created this inflationary problem that we have now. So now you've got a situation where the West has forced Putin's hand because he can't transact in US dollars, and all commodities all over the world are traded in futures, which are price in US dollars. So the takeaway is going to be the bandying together of Russia, China, probably Venezuela, and of course everyone's good friends, the Saudi Arabians. I'm yet to be convinced, and we can again have this conversation at a later date, it's a, it is a very dark, deep rabbit hole to go down to, to begin to surmise about the end of the US dollar. I have grave reservations that uh, the US dollar can be replaced as easily as many people think it can be, let alone would like it to be. But what I can say is that the power of having your the backing of your economy actually being energy, the price of energy, in an inflationary environment is actually a powerful boon, B-O-O-N, for November, to that country, right? In the same way that in Australia, they reap the rewards when the iron ore price is super high, right? Um, The companies do well, the governments do even better because they have all these royalties and taxes which they do absolutely nothing to deserve or earn, but then BHP and Rio has a bumper year for whatever reason, and iron ore is in favour and coal is in favour and everybody benefits. So I think that's that's going to be the resultant effect. But as I say, your listeners might expect me to say that it was the Ukraine, but
but what it really is, it has just been the natural conclusion of about two years of central bankers and governments around the world uh, issuing so much debt it's not funny and creating so much liquidity it's not funny. And voila, you have 11% inflation in the UK, you have household energy bills in the UK that are 700% higher than they were two years ago. Low expects inflation will hit 8% in Australia. The Yanks really got to around 10%. Their numbers are fungible. Again, that's a whole new interview. And, and this is what we have. So we have an inflationary environment and the Ukraine situation, um, I don't think is going to be resolved anytime soon. And so if we look at everything that's been going on in the world, and we've touched on it quite a bit, what can you walk us through over, let's say, the last 12 months and how Australia has fared compared to other markets in the world? So from a, a capital markets perspective, um, the Australian stock market uh, has done materially better um, than pretty much every other major exchange in the world apart from Argentina. Australia at the moment, I think, is down somewhere around negative three, negative four percent for the year compared to Europe and America. The Nasdaq is down 29 percent for the year. Its main constituents are tech stocks. This is a very important point which I'll come back to. The S&P 500 hasn't fared as badly uh, as the Nasdaq, but it's still down sort of 7 or 18 percent. And Europe at the moment is around negative 10 percent. So Australia, relatively speaking, hasn't fared as badly. Why is this so? First of all, there's the why, and then the second point is, is it true? Australia effectively digs stuff up out of the ground, exports it, we don't manufacture anything in this country. And again, I was quite bemused to read in the, um, the Labor Stats report from the ABS a couple of months ago that the best paid sector, of course, in Australia, by median weekly earnings is the mining sector. And that's pretty much as anybody can attest to if they've had to do any refurbishments or maintenance on their house in the last two years, you're shortly followed by construction. So there we have, of course, the beautiful duopoly of houses and holes, um, which is what drives the Australian economy. So fortunately, both of those two things have fared pretty well through COVID, through the past two years. The commodity sector, obviously, we export far too much as a proportion of total exports go to one country which is China and from the construction perspective of course you've got two issues there first of all interest rates were brought into an insanely negative territory through COVID making the cost of capital not quite free but Chris I do not need to explain this really any further to someone in your industry who watched housing prices go up 20-25% per annum for two years in a row. So that was completely fueled by the actions of the RBA. And again, coming back to that, Australia is protected in its commodity exporting arm by the fact that China just will buy whatever we dig up out of the ground. So that's great when you've got a customer who will literally buy every single thing you can. And it was it brought me a great deal of amusement in the first couple of months when COVID kicked off in 2020 when the Australian Prime Minister had the temerity to suggest to China that we should have an investigation 
as to the origins of the coronavirus. And the Chinese promptly said, righto, we'll, we'll just stop buying coal from you. And that lasted, I think, about three or four weeks. And then they bought the coal again. So that's wonderful to have a, uh, an almost infinite level of demand for something that you just have to dig up out of the ground. The housing sector in this country is a phenomenon. Apart from Canada and New Zealand and Sweden, nothing else comes close to the appreciation in the Australian property market. Why is that so? Well, apart from the cost of capital being quite cheap um, to people who can demonstrate that they can service the debt, which again is not a lot, providing they've got a decent salary, hopefully integrated somehow into the mining sector. But the combination of the RBA, the government, APRA, who is the, uh, the banking regulator, and ASIC, I think that they've planted the flag pretty firmly in Terra Australis and said that the property sector won't be going down on our watch. The only problem with that is that Australia represents about 2% of global capital markets. Mm-hmm. So from an investing perspective, Australia is hardly on the radar. So when you've got big, big players in the States and big players in Europe um, who need to deploy capital, they could come in and buy up a significant part of the stock market fairly quickly. So going back to what I said before about are the numbers real? Inflation, the last inflation number that the ABS reported for the 12 months to September, I think, was 7.3%. But if your, if your stock market returns are down 4%, the return, the nominal return, subtract from that what the inflation level is, and that's your real return, okay? It's, your, it's, your, it's what you receive in your hand after inflation which we believe is a government-caused tax. It is the end result of fiscal mismanagement. Okay, so the Australian stock market has lost 4% and inflation is 7.3%. Okay, so in real terms, your average Aussie, you're actually down 11% this year. Mm. If you've made 2% in a year where inflation's been 7.3, you've still lost the money. Relative to the rest of the world, Australia is doing okay for the aforementioned reasons of being in the very advantaged position that we have a consumer to the north of us who will buy literally everything we can dig up out of the ground. And then the construction industry in this country benefits from the banking sector, which is effectively a protected species by two regulators, government, and the RBA. So Marcel, this is where you get the chance to tell us how you've been going in comparison to the Australian market and global markets. Yep, cool. Well, we've had a pretty good year. In the global macro hedge fund that we run, as I said before, that trades foreign exchange, commodities, uh, bonds, and equities, of course. We're up about 18% so far, and We've taken a moderately bearish position um, going into December because, quite frankly, again, the market is quite schizophrenic. Um, The market is reactive to press conferences. We run a quant hedge fund. So at our core, we run a couple of thousand econometric models per month to determine what we believe or what our 
the function, the economic functions that we've written into the algorithms to believe, uh, to identify value. And what happened in November with Powell talking about, you know, perhaps he's ready to slow the pace of the rate rises in America going into, into 2023. You know, the market shot up four or 5% in some parts. And as we said, in the space of seven or eight days now, in the US, they're down three and a half percent. All it really is, is the market overreacting to what they perceive to be good news. And of course, the problem that we have now is to say that this whole money printing and quantitative easing stuff was literally methadone that you give to a heroin addict. But the analogy was was incredible. So it's been a very uh, a very challenging year for equities because as bond yields go up, bonds of course are perceived to be a risk-free investment. Although that um, that issue about real rates of returns can actually bite you even harder in bond land. The fact that we did, that we invest the way we do, mm-hmm. is why in 2020, when markets fell 36%, we made money. And, and it is why uh, this year, when the NASDAQ is down almost 30%, mm-hmm. uh, we are up almost 20 And so, in all of this, we've heard that the Australian market's actually done pretty well. Yeah, that's yeah. What's the value that you see in being global rather than just in Australia? The thing about being global, I mean, going outside Australia to get access to stocks, to sectors in an economy that we don't have here. That, that, that is the bottom line. We have no pharmaceutical sector, really. I mean, CSL is a huge player, but it's one stock. Like, we don't actually have an industry. And again, what is the stock market? Go back to... Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, whose favourite metric for assessing valuation, be it over or under, of a, of a stock market, is the uh, the percentage of total stock market capitalisation to the country's GDP, mm-hmm. right? The proportion of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, for that metric to work, you actually need comparators of an industry that's operating in your economy that then goes and lists on the exchange. And, mate, we simply don't have... The ultimate argument for diversification is to achieve superior risk-adjusted returns, spreading your investment positions, and to do that, to get your money out of Australia, you can go into sectors of a stock market that you literally can't buy in Australia. And so... You mentioned commodities earlier, but yep. what are some of the key trades that you've had really play out for you over the last 12 months? That haven't played out? Or that, have, that have, that have worked out for you? The what went bad stuff is actually, it's easier to answer. And the short answer here um, is really me telling you what our risk management protocols are. We run models on about 1,600, maybe maybe 1,700 individual stock models of companies in America, Europe, Japan, and Australia. Mm-hmm. We run models of the major currency pairs, of which there are not too many, and we model 18 commodities. 
Now, for each of those positions, if something goes wrong, we have what we call gates in the systems, which will initiate stop-loss protocol, which is a really fancy way of saying if it drops X percent, and for most of our stuff, the, the absolute kick-out will be 10%, mm-hmm. we are simply gone. Mm. It's gone to the 10% level, the signal erupts and says, close down the position, you go in, you try and get it out of VWAP, so you don't want to get taken taken out even further, mm-hmm. but the vol- the price movement can be in, in commodities in particular, so commodities and foreign exchange are both very volatile um, asset classes, and of course, what's had the most fun in 2022? Natural gas. The uh, earliest I could get it out was the position ended up costing us 18% uh, instead of losing only 10%. But in the in the pure commodity sleeve, that was one eighteenth. So we run 18 commodity positions in the commodity sleeve. Mm-hmm. That was one eighteenth of the whole thing. Right? Ask me what went well. Whitehaven coal went really well, 270% well. Natural gas went well on the way up. Brent, West Texas went well on the way up. And intra-months, we've had good wins on certain global equity markets. So just thinking about the normal way that an investor would invest, partially in equities, partially in bonds, can you walk us through how bonds went this year? I probably pay the most attention to to American bonds, yep. which are down around about twelve percent. Mm-hmm. The bond market is what is supposed to be your ballast. It is supposed to be your keel when markets go south. Mm-hmm. So you've had the the double whammy this year of losing eighteen percent in your equities portfolio mm-hmm. if you're long only, and the old. You know, financial planner model of the old 60-40, which has stood most investors in good stead, mm-hmm. to be fair, um, for about 30 or 40 years. And has there actually been some wisdom in holding property instead of bonds yeah. over the last point? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, as we, as I, as I threw to you earlier, in most markets, this most global markets, in the last couple of years. The capital appreciation of property as an asset class has gone up 20 to 25%. And if you were wise enough to buy property in certain pockets or capital cities that you think were going to have uh, additional benefits to what was happening in the post-COVID world, then you've done even better. The thing about property, what, what saves people in property as opposed to what crucifies people in capital markets is that... The transaction costs to getting out of property are much higher. Mm-hmm. It is not an easy process. Mm-hmm. Right? Any any punk off the street can log into their Comsec account and hit sell mm-hmm. when they see that BHP's down ten percent mm-hmm. and they get they get nervous. Mm-hmm. Right? They can sell. Mm-hmm. If you've got a house or an apartment, it is a laborious process. Yeah. I'm sure you don't mind me saying this, but like, it is not something that you just do in 24 hours when you but, sell a property. Well, the other thing is getting it priced correctly is not, a, not an easy thing either. And the price in property is what the purchaser is prepared to pay. Correct. 
and again, not everyone moves at the speed of a thousand gazelles. Mm. Again, the beauty here with property is that it's pretty much a protected species in Australia. But the fact that there are transaction costs, like you've got to pay the lawyers, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. uh, the stamp duty, etc. If you if you're up for stamp duty, what have you? But it slows people down. And as we second guess themselves. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But but as we said before, the problem with investing is the person doing the investing. Mm. With property, it's almost like you've got this built-in gate that stops people doing something stupid. When you talk about property versus bonds this year, there's almost no comparison, mate. Like it's. And so, how do you see the next six to twelve months playing out? And uh, what are some of the key variables you're looking at that could change things? Stock markets, by their very nature, are filled by speculators, right? Who are making bets based on where they think supportive economic conditions are going to be. 12 months hence. So the, the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism. The real economy is not. It, it is what it is. So the conditions, Lowe said himself, the esteemed RBA governor, said this week that he expects inflation to be 8%. This is the same dude that told us a year and a half ago that there was no inflation, it's all good, we don't need to raise rates, no problems. Until until what was it 2024 yeah that was a good memory <laughs> yeah. yeah you know this whole wage increases etc etc it's almost like some of these people have never actually studied a single a single piece of economics in their life so um, providing the construction sector keeps keeps doing what it's doing providing China gets out of its zero COVID fantasy uh, back into the production lines and needs to buy more coal and more iron ore and more copper off us, off Australia. So the outlook here, Chris, I would dare hazard to say um, there are more supportive economic conditions, definitely in America and definitely in Europe. It's a relative world. And if people have made it this far, if they haven't covered a lot of ground. You sure have. (laughs) How could they potentially invest with you? Well, if they're listening to this, then they know you. So so you can tell them where to go. Um, But they can come to our website, uh, which is Arminius Capital. You're going to make them spell that? Without a K. Without a K, yeah. Yeah. Arminius, A-R-M-I-N-I-U-S, capital.com.au. There'll be email contacts there. Otherwise speak to my dear friend Chris and he'll put you in contact with me personally and uh, I know we've covered off on plenty but before we wrap up is there anything else you want to cover off on about oh no look I think I think that's more than sufficient for this evening and as I said there are a number of points that we could strip out from tonight's conversation is there anything we can do to finish on a high note you may wish me a very merry Christmas (laughs) And a happy um, new year. And a happy new year. <laughs> lots of lots of Whitehaven coal in my sack would be uh, be wonderful. Don't know if it'll get another two hundred and seventy percent next year. Hope springs eternal. Thank you. All good. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.